Welcome to Edgemont Bible Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, where our mission is to glorify God by guiding people into a discipleship relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to today's message. Did anybody get this little book in the mail over the last couple of days called Holy Moments? Okay, a couple of you. Um, I would like to warn you, not admonish as in you did something wrong, but warn you as in do not be deceived. Um, recently, Lynn came home. Uh, she was discipling a couple of ladies. She came home and said, Al, what do you know about the orange curriculum? And personally, I've never heard of the orange curriculum. I've always believed that anyone who wants to spend a little bit of time in the Word of God can come up with all kinds of lessons. I mean, there's only 33,100 verses, 1,189 chapters, and multitudes of stories with lessons given right there if we just look. So curriculum and I, it's not that curriculum's bad. We use curriculum in junior church and stuff like that. But uh, I've just always felt as though the Bible is our curriculum. Let's use it. Um, but uh, so I told her, I've never heard of the Orange Curriculum. Well, apparently the Orange Curriculum is widely used in evangelical churches. And um, so we got on Google, which of course is not necessarily the best place to get all of your information. But we asked, what's wrong with the Orange Curriculum? And uh, they came up with a few uh, podcasts and things like that. And so we listened to one, about 16 minutes long. Tells you everything you need to know, but we're afraid to ask. And obviously, some of the stuff is uh, opinion. Uh, but the reality is, is the Orange Curriculum has its origins in Andy Stanley's church. Now, when we think of Stanley, we think of Charles, and therefore must be pretty good stuff. Andy, unfortunately, has kind of gone off on uh, a little bit of the wokeness uh, the LGBTQ, some of those people are in his church, and they have more faith than you do because they know that they're not appreciated by Christians, and they're still coming because they want to get to know the Master. And I say, let them come. But I don't need to affirm the lifestyle that they have chosen when it is contrary to the Word of God. And uh, unfortunately, there are churches that are affirming it. You probably saw the video on social media of the liberal pastor that was uh, saying that he didn't believe parts of the Bible because obviously it was written by men and it was wrong. And one of the areas where it was wrong was in the area of the LGBTQ. And lightning struck the church a couple hours after service and burned it to the ground. Kind of like, well, I guess that was appropriate, but we'll let God worry about all of that. So uh, within this Holy Moments book, much like the Orange Curriculum, Within the Orange Curriculum, uh, the story of David and Goliath, there are two lessons you should get out of it. David was, of course, a small guy, and uh, he persevered. He, he wanted to go out there and fight Goliath for the glory of the Lord, and, and no one thought he could do it, but he persevered. And the other lesson you ought to get out of it is you should let the little guy give it a try. I don't know about you, but I, I think there are more important lessons than uh, those two uh, within uh, the Word of God. 
uh, as I'm, and I, all I did was peruse the beginnings. You know, I start with the table of contents here. And, um, okay, moment for clarity. Uh, what is a holy moment? Ooh, let's go look at that one. So I open it up to what is a holy moment. The crucial question is, what is a holy moment? A holy moment is a single moment in which you open yourself to God. You make yourself available to Him. You set aside personal preference and self-interest for the one moment, uh, and for one moment you do what you prayerfully believe is God, God is calling you to do. That's what a holy moment is. Uh, these holy moments, these tiny collaborations with God, unleash the pure, unmitigated joy that I first experienced walking home that afternoon that I was 15 when he came to know the Lord. Uh, he goes on a couple of paragraphs later, you are equipped right now to collaborate with God and create holy moments. The coming pages will teach you how to recognize opportunities to create holy moments. And so the next section is called the moment of decision. If you only learn to master one moment in your life, learn to master the moment of decision. A little bit further down, if I could give only one piece of advice, it would be this. Make choices that are easy to live with. Make choices you can look back on longingly, like you do upon the best times with your friends. Life is choices. We are constantly making them, but, we are, choos- but are we choosing wisely? We are not born great decision makers. It is something that we must learn. The wisdom of holy moments will teach you how to become a great decision maker. And I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other stuff. Now, as I read through that, was there anything wrong? I mean, just outright, wow, can't believe they said that wrong. And the reality is, is no, there wasn't. In, in fact, you could read in what we believe the Bible teaches into a lot of what was said. But this is where the devil does his best work. Where it's not overtly wrong, but you get to collaborate with God. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but you get to talk things out with him and and decide whether you want to do it his way or yours. Okay? Uh, Within the Orange Curriculum, there isn't things that are overtly wrong, but it's really the improvement of self. You can do it. A lot of character issues are talked about in these things, and if you just try harder, you can do it. You can be that good person. Hogwash! No. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Okay, the concept of abiding, you are living there. It's not a holy moment. It's a bunch of holy moments. Within those times, you've made some wrong decisions. Uh Uh-huh. There's no condemnation. And you go boldly back to the throne of grace to receive mercy, to confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive your sin. Why? Because it's already been dealt with. Okay? On the cross, God poured out His wrath, His anger, His condemnation. 
And that is not for us anymore because we've been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God, sealed there until the day of redemption. And that's not for us. We're now part of his family. And as a loving father, he is always ready to correct us where we need to be corrected, forgive us where we need to be forgiven, not for the sake of getting into heaven, but for the sake of keeping that relationship open. That's the idea of abiding. And his words are abiding in us. That means we're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Okay? It's become a part of us. It shows in the way we live. When you do that, you bear fruit. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Okay? Uh, last week when I started uh, this, this small series on seeking God's face, we talked about the things that were included in it. And I told you that this week we would be dealing with things that might actually prevent you from seeing God's face in its fullest sense. And so as we look at our uh, sermon outline this morning, uh, things that prevent us from seeing God's face. Now, again, when I say that, I'm talking about in its fullest sense because obviously we're born again, we're uh, believers, we're not perfect, and uh, we get to, as we seek God's face, we get to see things about Him. But uh, I saw a video this past week, an African pastor talking about you do not grow in your relationship with God. And of course, that's the terminology that we use, so it's kind of like, okay, let's see what he's got to say. And uh, my son is my son, and he does not grow in his relationship with me. That relationship never changes. But we can grow in the knowledge of God. We can get to know more about him. We can get to know him better, and therefore walk the way he wants us to better. So when you first get saved, you know, everything seems to be going really great. Wow. And, and then after a little while, God allows you to uh, experience life. And within that, uh, you normally fall on your face. And Satan, the accuser, comes along and accuses you. And you start getting a little bit more self-oriented about how you didn't do so well. And you might feel guilty, you might get depressed, you might worry about whether or not God still loves you, and all that kind of stuff. And when you get on that path, believe me, you're not seeing God for who He really is. You're seeing a God that you've made up in your mind. Because who God really is is based on truth. And what have we already talked about in the abiding concept? No condemnation. For, uh, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you our, your sins. Now, why is that important? Well, you might remember that uh, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And the disciples had a variety of answers. And um, depending on what those people thought, uh, their responses to him and the way they were going to live at that point might have changed. And then he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am. He also gave a parable. You might remember Peter's answer was, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. You know, you've been living with me for 24 hours a day for the last however long, and you didn't figure this out on your own. This has been revealed by the Spirit of God. Okay? 
But in his parable, he talks about handing out the talents. He gives five to one guy, two to another, one to a third, according to their ability. And he says, do business until I come back. When he comes back, the, five, the guy with five, well, he did business. He gained five more. And he goes, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your king, of the kingdom. Uh, the with, one with two, gain two more. Fantastic. Enter into the joy. And the one with one came and said, you know, I knew you, that you're stern, that you reap where you don't sow. And so being afraid, I, I took my talent, put it in uh, this cloth, buried it in the ground, and uh, here it is. It's yours again. At which point he rebukes the slave and says, you say that you knew this about me. Well, therefore, I'm going to judge you according to what you said. If you really believe that, you'd have put the money in the bank and at least gotten me interest. In uh, the letter to the American church, Eric Metaxas uses this to help us understand that we will live according to who we think God is. The importance of growing in the knowledge of God, okay? Because you're going to live according to who, do you, who you think He is. Romans 13 says that we're to submit to the government, and it gives the, uh, the general uh, situation of what we're supposed to do as believers and gives the general information of what the government's supposed to do uh, on people's behalf, Back in uh, Martin Luther's time, there was a, a little difficulty that came about uh, between the Lutheran church and the government, and Luther is the one that came up with the idea, just do everything they say, you know, let's stop arguing about this thing. And that has become the basic stance of the church ever since. Just do whatever the government tells you. Hmm. The government is telling us that we should allow our kids to determine whether or not they're boys or girls, based on feelings, not based on biology. The government is telling us that parents don't have the right to determine what kind of information is taught in the tax-collected, paid-for schools. We're supposed to just sit back and accept all of that, because all authority is from God, right? Do we have a relationship with our government? Yeah, we do. It's based on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Constitution being the highest law of the land. It says within it, any law that is contrary to the Constitution is unlawful. What's the government's job according to Romans 13? To punish the wicked and praise the good. If they are making laws that are unlawful, who has become the wicked? The government. And according to those two documents, who is in charge of the government? It is of, for, and by the people, and according to the consent of the people. Now, with that in mind, who do you say that God is? Is going to determine how you live in submission to a, a wicked, evil, sinful government. Something to think about. Because that very topic 
talks about what you'll see in your outline here. If we are seeking God's face and there are things that prevent us from seeing what He's really like, who He really is, well, maybe some of those things need to be laid aside because what's more important is us understanding who He is. So, uh, things that prevent us from seeing God's face. Letter A, pride and stubbornness. I don't know about you, but uh, one of the things that has always amazed me is in my family line, pride is a real issue. We are something. Ask us and we'll tell you. (sighs) My, My dad was such a proud and arrogant man. And from what I can see looking in from the outside and only going on history because he's no longer here, he had absolutely no reason to be proud. Okay? Uh, he, was an, he was a drunk. He did not support himself after about uh, age 32. He was constantly on welfare or unemployment. He would go to work long enough to collect unemployment, and then he'd go back on unemployment. And then he'd go around looking for jobs that he knew weren't hiring, so they'd sign his paper so he could continue to collect welfare or whatever the case was. Uh, Is that something to be proud of? Not at all. But pride and stubbornness, uh, looking at the grandchildren. Uh, They are stubborn little buggers. When they want what they want, uh, they really want it, and you better give it to them and... uh, they take after their grandmother. She's not here, so I can say that. <laughs> In 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4, it says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, talking about what he's talking about there, uh, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, revilings, evil suspicions. So if you're not going to believe what the Word of God teaches, you're proud. You're stubborn. And uh, there's really not a whole lot of use talking to you because a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Why? Because of pride, stubbornness. Uh, notice number one, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Romans 12.3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, if we're going to be thinking soberly, we're going to be believing what God says about us. Let me see, a couple of things that Paul wrote in Romans. Uh, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Elsewhere he says uh, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, in other words, if you're saved, the body is dead because of sin. As, As I've already explained to you, you are incapable of doing anything that's pleasing to God in and of yourself. That's why we need the power of the Spirit of God in us. It goes on to say, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He, uh, uh, he will give life to your mortal bodies. He's talking about now, not someday when you get raised from the grave. He's going to give you the capacity to live in a way that's pleasing to God. These are the kinds of things that we need to understand and act upon because when you think you're all that, pride comes before 
a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Been there, done that. Probably each one of you can say the same. Number two, not acknowledging wrong. Uh, (laughs) Excusing or justifying sin. Well, you know, I wouldn't have yelled if you kids would have listened. Anybody use that besides me? No, no one's ever said that other than me. Okay? Uh, I'm sorry, that's just justifying yourself. If you handled it in the flesh, call it what it is. That was just the flesh. I, I got angry and you got the flesh. Okay? Um, the reality is, is excusing sin is not acknowledging the wrong that you've done. Justifying it is not acknowledging it. Here's another one for you. And here's one that we as parents are guilty of. And I'm sorry, but shame on us. Now tell that other kid that you just beat over the head with the Tonka truck that you're sorry. Okay? Sorry is expressing a feeling, and it is not looking for the lifting of guilt. When we do wrong, we are justifiably in a wrong relationship with that other person, and they have the right to bring uh, prosecution, not persecution, prosecution. And when we say we're sorry, it's kind of like, well, you know, I kind of feel bad that you're all upset about this. There is a place for that. You know, if, I, if I've hurt your feelings, I'm, I'm sorry your feelings were hurt. But if I didn't say anything wrong, oh, well, deal with it. <laughs> or as I, I had one sermon where my kids were counting how many times I said, get over it. Uh, because that really is the truth when you're confronted with the truth. If you disagree, get over it. Okay? But when I hit you in the head with a Tonka truck, saying I'm sorry is just telling you how I feel. And why do I feel that way? Because my mom and dad just threatened my life. I wouldn't be able to play for the next 30 minutes if I uh, don't say I'm sorry. No, I need to be asking for forgiveness. I'm, a- I'm acknowledging I've done wrong, and I'm asking you to lift the charge of guilt from me so that you're not holding it against me. Uh, In Luke chapter 17, verse 4, it says, If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Uh, There's this thought among Christians that when I repent, I never do it again. Luke 17, 4. Seven times in a day. And the disciples actually asked the Lord, you know, how many times I got to forgive my brother? Seven times? And he goes, nah, 70 times seven. I lost count after 14. I got to go to 490. How many is that now? I got to continue to forgive this guy. Wow. So when people do not acknowledge wrong, that's pride and, and stubbornness. Not only do they, there need to be an acknowledgement, but there needs to be a response uh, from the people when they do. Uh, letter B, self-will. Self-willed people, for the most part, are, are more concerned with right now. Uh, I'll give you a, an example. There's a guy down in Texas that has a very large church. I think it seats somewhere around 30,000. And he wants you to be able to live your best life now. He's got great hair don't I wish, you know? Um, he's got a wonderful smile. 
his wife is his co-pastor, and um, they, they think you should be able to live your best life now. And I, I want you to understand something. Now is not what we're living for. If you are, you're kind of missing the point of you have eternal life. Okay, You've entered into a relationship with God whereby He has said certain things about you that are true already, but we're going to be working them out in your life for as long as you're alive. And then when you get to see Jesus, you're going to be just like Him. Until then, yeah, we're working on it. Okay, But when you get to see Jesus, you get to be with Him forever. Now, everybody talks about going to heaven. I want you to understand, as perfect as heaven is, that is not, not God's eternal dwelling place for us. Heaven is a layover. If you fly to, well, fly to Alaska, you're going to end up in Seattle, and then you're going to end up in Juneau, and you're going to spend a, a little bit of time there, and it's called a layover. Okay, And then you finally land in Gustavus. If you're there between May and September, you get to get there on a jet. If not, you get to go on a plane about 50 feet above the trees. Ask Rachel and Jonathan. <laughs> they went in April. But the uh, whole point being is heaven's a layover. Yeah, we get to go there. We have the judgment seat of Christ, and, and there's a lot of singing. So I, I hope you like singing. And, and if you are not very good at it yet, you will be then. Don't worry about it, Okay. Uh, you will not need to carry it in a bucket or anything like that. Uh, it'll be a great place, but then he's going to get on a white horse and we're going to come back with him and he's going to rule and reign here and we get to rule and reign with him. This is where God's plan is going to be worked out. Now, after that thousand years, I don't know. But he said that we're going to be with him forever. That's good enough for me. Okay. But in the meantime, we have eternal life now, not someday, okay? So we're not just thinking about now. We're thinking about being a part of God's complete plan. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Romans 16, 18. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Uh, James chapter 4, I missed it. Shame on me. Well, if you go to James chapter 4, he's going to deal with, how do you say that tomorrow I'm going to go to such and such a place? Don't you know that your life is a vapor? Therefore, you should be saying, the Lord willing, this is what the plans are. So that's the James 4 passage. You can look that up. So that brings us to selfish ambition. In Philippians 2.3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. When I got saved, uh, I was looking at getting into the Air Force Academy and um, in talking to various people, you had to have a plan. You had to have goals. You had to be ambitious. You needed to be doing everything that was necessary to reach that goal. And, and you didn't just need to have a goal. You needed to have the five-year plan and the 10-year plan. Oh, man. And then I got saved and found out ambition meant... Nothing wrong with the concept of I desire to grow and I'm going to do what's necessary about growing and things like that. But the reality is, is 
uh, Proverbs says that, you know, man makes the plans and then God directs his steps. Can I tell you that God does not always direct the steps according to your plans? Okay. Uh, he does with you as I do with my tools. He probably doesn't lose them as often as I do. But he uses you the way he deems fit to use you. And the more you walk with him and get to know him, the sharper a tool you're going to be. You might get used a little bit more often, but you, you make all the plans you want. And if the Spirit of God isn't behind it, you may look good on the outside accomplishing something and then get to the judgment seat of Christ and find out, yeah, that all burned up because it was just all me. Okay? So selfish ambition. Let her see religious ambition. Seeking our own interest in the guise of pursuing spiritual interests. So in other words, they're doing something that looks spiritual, but really they've got the plan behind it. I'm doing this so that I can whatever. Okay? Give you a few examples here. Church growth movements. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.5 says, Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Uh, do we want Edgemont Bible Church to grow numerically? And the answer is sure, sure. The more people, the lighter the load, okay? Uh, do we want Edgemont Bible Church to grow spiritually more than numerically? Which might be one of the reasons why numerically we find it a little bit difficult to grow at times. It might be one of the reasons. There may be other reasons, like the tools that God has to use, okay? I understand. But the reality is, is we're more concerned with spiritual growth than we are numerical growth. Church growth movements, we want to make the church so that the unbeliever coming in off the street will, will feel comfortable here. They, they will like it. Uh, so therefore, we're going to have a rock concert at 1130 and uh, smoke and lights and woo, everything's going to be cool. And we're not going to talk about sin because... Well, that will turn them off. And uh, what did Paul say in our Sunday school class this morning? The cross is a stumbling block to them. Well, we're going to preach Christ crucified. And if they stumble, that's not our problem. Where the churches that are in the church growth movement, many of them, they might mention a various... Well, okay, you just got to have those holy moments. Make those holy decisions in those moments. Now, you need to understand that you've got to abide in the vine. You've got to live there. Okay? Um, so church growth, growth movements, they have a form of godliness. Uh, sometimes they're denying the power. It's very man-oriented, man-centered, and man-empowered. How about feminism in the church? Oh, do we want to open that can of worms? Yes. Yes, we do. Okay. Um, this is the verse that they use to uh, demonstrate that there ought to be women pastors. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In the context, you're going to find that this verse is in relation to salvation. Anyone can be saved. When we go to the passage that talks about pastors, it says the husband of one wife, and I know out there in the world, they think that can be done. 
that a woman can be married to a woman and be her husband. I know they think that, but I'm pretty sure they're wrong, okay? Now, why did God pick men? Wouldn't you think, when you understand what a pastor is supposed to do, he's supposed to care for and nurture and, and, and you know, really be there for the people. He's going to guide and shepherd and feed and care for. Boy, doesn't that sound like a mom? It, it really does. I'll be honest with you. I believe that women are naturally better equipped to be pastors than men are then why did God call men to do it? God puts us in a place where we're incapable so that we have to depend upon His Spirit so that God gets the glory. And so He chooses men. Wow! What does that say about us, guys? Right, ladies? You know what I'm talking about. And guess where He puts women? In a place that is not natural, so that they have to depend upon God, the Spirit, to accomplish what God wants. He says, wives, submit unto your own husbands. See? It's not natural, and you need God to do it. Why? Because, well, he's a guy. Okay? That's, that's a good enough response. So whole point being is when feminism comes into the church, whether it be through the need for women pastors. Now, when we're talking about youth group, could there be a woman there to help with the girls? I don't have a problem with that. And she might be called a pastor. I don't care for that, but I'm not going to fight over it because, again, who's she dealing with? Girls. But Paul says, I wouldn't have a woman teach a man, or usurp authority. Well, if you don't like that, can I send you back to God and talk to Him about it? Well, you're interpreting it wrong. Go talk to God, okay? Or, I hate to say it, find a church that you're in agreement with, okay? So feminism in the church is another, uh, it looks spiritual, but they're seeking their own interests. And then some religious activities. In Philippians 1.16, it says, The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. So sometimes people do spiritual things because they got an agenda. Oh, do I want to do this? No, I really don't. Um, can, can I tell you that there have been those who have become Awana leaders because their kid was in Awana? And then they followed their kid through Awana, and when the kid stopped being in Awana, boom, they're not a leader anymore. Maybe you've done that, and you might have reasons that I, I don't understand. I, I, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. But the reality is it looks like you had an agenda to make sure your kid was treated properly in Awana and make sure that they're going through and you followed them through. Maybe you ought to serve in Awana because Jesus Christ is Lord and that he might use you to minister to any number of kids. Just saying. Now, if I got that wrong, okay. I'm sorry I got it wrong. I'm not asking for forgiveness until I really understand the concept, but that's what it looks like in some cases, okay? 
we have people that do not have kids in Awana, and they've been serving for 152 years. Peggy Murphy is one of them. Uh, yeah, I know she's got grandkids in Awana, but she's not following them up. She's continued to be faithful and serve. Why? Because that's the thing for her to do at this time. Uh, letter D, claims of ownership, not surrendering to the cross. It is amazing how many people own various rooms in this uh, complex. Um, ownership becomes an issue when someone else wants to use your room. Oy vey. Can I tell you something? None of you, including myself, own any of the rooms in this building uh, or this complex. Uh, they all belong to God, and they need to be used by the people of God to minister to the people of God uh, to bring about the glory of God. And if that means someone's using your room, should they be respectful of the things that you have on the wall and on the shelves? Sure, they, they really should. That's called loving your brother as yourself, okay? But it uh, doesn't mean they can't use the room. Should they set it up the way they found it? Sure enough, ask Jeff. Anytime you're going camping, how should the campground look when you're done? Better than when you got there, right? So that, that's the concepts that we need to think about. That's the concepts of ownership here. Notice, whatever is not surrendered becomes an idol. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Um, why does this come up? I'm sorry. It just keeps on coming. <laughs> tattoos. How many times are tattoos mentioned in the Bible? One time. If you look up the Hebrew word for the word tattoo in Leviticus, you'll find out it means to cut. Uh, part of the idolatry of the Old Testament was to show your idol that you were sincere and that you were really willing to sacrifice, you would cut yourself so that uh, that idol would recognize your sincerity. You might remember the prophets of Baal when Elijah and they had their little contest. And it says that they were cutting themselves. They were tattooing themselves. Okay? Now, what is a tattoo? Is it the cutting of oneself? No. It is a putting a picture in your skin with ink and needles, and, and you can get real dogmatic if you want to. But the reality is, is nowhere in the Bible does it talk about that kind of thing. But why do people do it? Well, it's interesting. When you talk to them, some of them uh, legitimately outright say, most of them being unbelievers, that they're addicted to it. They want to get more and more and more. Okay? Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Not all things are necessary. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Why? Because I've been bought with a price. I already have a master. I don't need another one. Okay? When you look at the concepts of uh, tattoo art, can I say that some of these people are artists? I mean, some of the work they do is really beautiful. Um, but it's not your body. So if you're going to put one on it, what do you think ought to be the truth about that tattoo? Let's get three skulls placed along the chest here and a bunch of dead bodies under you know, you think that glorifies God? 
I don't think so. And look, if you have tattoos, especially if you got them before you were saved and they have that culture of death and all that kind of stuff or the culture of sexual immorality, I'm not sitting here in judgment of you. I'm just saying if you were going to get one as a believer, you might consider something that's going to glorify God. Amen? Okay? Because your body is not yours. It is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that should affect the way we eat, the way we drink, that which we put on it, things like that. Uh, j- just something to consider. Again, we're dealing with the concept of ownership. And then, of course, a good example of that is Abraham and Isaac. When God calls to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son. Now, wait a minute, I got a 13-year-old over here. Oh, actually, by then he's probably uh, maybe 20-some-odd. Uh, he's my son too. No, 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 no. The one that I promised to give you, I want you to take that one and I want you to take him to a place that I'm going to show you and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. At which point it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. First of all, I know you don't believe in burnt offerings. And second of all, he's my son. What did Abraham do? Next morning he gets on his donkey and they head out with a couple of servants and he brings Isaac to where God showed him. And he tells the servants, we're going to go up there and worship the Lord. You stay here, hang on to the horses, and we'll come back. Because he understood that God had promised through Isaac. And so therefore, Isaac didn't need to be an idol. God has to raise him from the dead. So I'm going to do what God told me to do. So there's your example uh, as far as the non-claim of ownership. Letter E, fear. Interesting, the Bible says over 500 times, don't be afraid, do not fear. We, we saw last week that uh, uh, fear is basically due to unbelief, uh, one of the reasons in Matthew 8, 26. It is the uh, fear of man is a snare, Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of physical death. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Uh, Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me. That's what was written. When as yet there were none of them. God knows the day of my death, if I'm going to die. Because, of course, we're looking forward to the rapture. And I am not staying a day after. And I'm not leaving a day earlier. And I imagine if he knows when, he knows how. I don't need to be afraid of it. And it's not a matter of looking forward to death. It's a matter of recognizing it is a process that we all go through. It's kind of like male pattern baldness, unless you're Joel Olstein and a couple other people. Okay, uh, it's a process that we all go through, and we don't like the process, but the end result, closing our eyes here, opening them up there, hallelujah, okay, it's, it's not looking forward to death, it's looking forward to the other side of it, okay, it's kind of like a baby in the womb, it's getting cramped in here, I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy the process, but I'll be glad to get out there and see mom, it's that kind of a thing, okay. So uh, fear of physical death. These are things that would prevent you from seeing God's face. How about money? 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-10. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, but sure would like to be financially comfortable also. Uh, That that might cause a problem. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and uh, it is certain we uh, will carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which uh, drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and they've pierced themselves with, through with many sorrows. So you can see the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if you want to know what kinds of evil, just consider... Um, What's his name? He didn't hang himself. Epstein. Okay? What kinds of evil? People going to his island, and, and we don't even have to get into the possible uh, blood stuff. All we got to do is talk about what some of those people did while they were there. Yeah. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, notice these people have strayed from the faith. Some people, money becomes so important that they kind of leave the church behind. They would still claim to know God and stuff like that, but really their God has become uh, money. And they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Another thing that prevents us from seeing God's face, friendships. Notice the concepts of being unequally yoked. In uh, Proverbs 22, make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go. Why? First uh, Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Why? Verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Why? Well, number two, bad company corrupts good morals. Now notice that list of things that you're supposed to keep separate from a brother who is involved in these activities. Obviously, you are spiritually unequally yoked if you're hanging out with people that are involved in these kinds of things if you're truly born again. Now, you can talk about, well, they're not saved. Well, then I sure hope that's what you're talking about, is the lack of their salvation and not enjoying their company because secretly... You kind of like some of the things they're getting away with that they're not getting away with. Okay? And then the last one here is social position. In 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, well, 1 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? But in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. E I, that's still the same verse. I want to get down to 1 Corinthians 1. There we go. 25 to 29. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. Here's what Paul's saying about us. That not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and uh, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised. God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. Notice the concept of being one of the elite or rich and socially everybody's looking up to you. Yeah, not many of those people come to know Christ. But if you're common, base, foolish, tactless, I'm claiming that one. Uh, Yeah, you're called of God. And so if you're worried about social position, you're probably not going to be seeking God's face. And if you are making any effort to, that'll cause you to not be able to see it. And then teachers, in James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, obviously, uh, that would include anyone who was going to be out there in the limelight where people could see you and you are ultimately being a teacher. Uh, A lot of young people like the idea of becoming uh, a star, a a musical star. Let's go on America's Got Talent or American Idol or, or one of those things. And I might be discovered if you are concerned with all that, chances are, Even if you're a Christian, it's going to become an issue where you're not going to see God clearly. Now, why why do I talk about all of these things? Uh, Because the reality is, is it's very easy to grow in your faith, to uh, basically stabilize. uh, You're meeting the status quo and to get comfortable there. At which point, if you don't have God's purpose, and therefore if you're not actively seeking God's face, you're going to find something else to focus on, and that is going to prevent you from seeing all that you could see about your Christian life. And if that's the case, then how well will you be used by God for himself? The reality is, is you're going to become the dull chisel that's in my drawer instead of the one that's hanging on the magnet, ready to be used anytime I need a sharp one. That's what's going to happen. So there are things possibly in your lives that you need to be looking at again and saying, okay, God, have I gotten this in the wrong place where you're here and it's up here? Because if that's the case, I'm missing the point. I want to get it back in its right priority system. Because if you look at all these things, None of them are directly wrong. Sometimes you're doing the right thing for the wrong motive. Got to deal with that, but be doing the right things. So most of us are not involved in something that's just outright wrong, but it becomes a focus instead of God being the focus. What does it say in Matthew 16, 24? We read it earlier. The creed of the disciple is to take up one's cross. Uh, He's got to deny himself first, then take up his cross, and then follow Christ. Notice in your outline here the denial of self. When you look at the example of Christ, Christ was God. He had all of the glory, all of the riches, and he laid that aside and then became like one of us so that he could bring people to God for God's glory. That was his example. So what are we supposed to be doing following that example? You know, I used to run the quarter mile in about 50 seconds. Pretty sure I can't run a quarter of a mile right now, but that's another thing altogether. Uh, But the reality is, is I was faster than anybody on my track team. Cool. 
what good does it do me now? Uh, and that's another thing altogether. <clears throat> but if I still had the capacity to be running and all that kind of stuff, I sure better be running for Jesus, not for personal glory. I, I need to be following Jesus' example. And then, of course, the call of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is where we're really learning about Him, learning to walk with Him, developing in our knowledge of God, not in our relationship with Him. We're His children. Uh, so that's the call of Christ. Death to self. Again, a remembrance that there's nothing good in me. It's not a matter of me working on something. It's a matter of me recognizing there, that is in me, that's in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. I don't have it. I need God for all of it. So there's nothing good in me. And there's only one way to overcome. In Romans 6, 11, it says, Reckon yourself indeed to be dead unto sin. When temptation comes along, what do we reckon ourselves? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Wait a minute. If you're dead to sin, are you a sinner saved by grace? No, I'm a new creature. I need to believe what God says. And then I need to handle temptation the same way Jesus did. What was Jesus' focus? It is written. It is written. It is written. Why? Because he was seeking God's face. And that's what was important, pleasing the Father, not self. And then, uh, make no provision for the flesh in Romans 13, 14. We want to be able to watch shows that have things in them that would uh, allow the flesh to go, <laughs> and then we wonder why we struggle with it afterwards. And, and if you're not that person, well, then figure out what it is that allows you to make allowance for temptation when it comes. Because that's where I lived, I don't know how many times. I'd watch these shows. I mean, I actually got to a point where if an, a particular actor was in a show, I knew that if it was rated R, no, I can't watch that one. Then he started coming out with PG movies. And I went back and watched those movies because I knew that there wasn't going to be the R stuff in there. Okay? But I used to make allowance for the flesh and then wonder why I was struggling with the flesh. So make no allowance, make no provision. And then follow. Follow as sheep that follow their shepherd. In John chapter 10, it says, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They, yet uh, they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We're also, also supposed to follow him as a servant, his master. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. For where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, let, him, uh, let my, uh, excuse me, him my father will honor. John 21, 19. Then he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is Jesus talking to Peter and John and the other disciples. And Peter's thinking to himself, now, now wait a minute, you just told me something that didn't sound like a whole lot of fun, uh, and you you're letting that guy off? And he says, what if he were to stay here until I came back? That's none of your business. 
You keep your eyes on me. Follow me. Okay? That's where you serve. And then verse 22, uh, well, I just kind of aliphrased it for you. Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So serve as a ser- or follow as a servant follows his master. And then the example that he has given in uh, 1 Peter 2.21, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Look, uh, day to day, we're making decisions. And those decisions are going to be based on what we're seeking first. If you're seeking God's face, you're going to be seeing those decisions as what they are. If you're seeking any number of other things, and I only gave you eight, there's probably plenty more that you might be pursuing. Your vision is going to be twisted, tainted. You're not going to see clearly. What is your job? You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. Your job is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. Next week, we'll be looking at how that works out in your service. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love, for your care, for the work that you have done so that we might have that relationship with you. We pray that you would give us grace to open our hearts and our minds to learn more about you, to attain the knowledge of God. We already have a certain amount of the fear of the Lord. May we uh, get to know you better and then live in such a way that you are honored and glorified in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope God has encouraged you with today's message. Thank you for joining us at the Edgemont Bible Church. We'd love to have you visit us if you're ever in the area. For directions, more information, or to support the ministry of Edgemont Bible Church, please go to our website at edgemontbiblechurch.org. That's edgemontbiblechurch, all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Edgemont Bible Church, where the Sunday morning message is broadcast live.